This conversation is brought to you in part by Harvesthold from Verdant Technologies, with promotional consideration from Volcano Produce. Well, good day to everyone, or good evening, or good morning, whatever it is, just good day to you in general. Thank you so much for being here and hanging out with us again today. This show is going to be one of a kind, I believe, for this platform, and one that I have been working on, talking about, paying attention to, getting my head wrapped around for quite a while now. This topic is incredibly important to all of us on this planet, incredibly important to us as a nation, and my guest today is one of the all-time big brains out there in this topic and the subject, and it is absolutely, truly an honor to welcome him here today. And I'm going to give you all a little bit of a brief introduction to Dr. Detweiler really fast. He's one of the top food safety experts on this planet. He was just honored uh, just last month as one of the 16 people over the last 30 years that has shaped food safety in this country. And on that list includes presidents, senators, congressmen, heads of USDA and all kinds of agencies really making a massive impact. His CV, folks, his curriculum vitae is 74 pages long. He has put his name and his heart and soul into this industry like nobody else, in my opinion. He is a food policy expert. He works and teaches at Northeastern University, the College of Professional Studies. He's trained in submarine warfare kids. We're going to talk about submarine warfare today as well, because why wouldn't we talk about submarines if one gets a chance to talk about submarines? Ladies and gentlemen, it's an absolute honor, privilege, thrill to welcome to the Todd Versation broadcast today, Dr. Darren Detweiler. Sir, it's an honor to have you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you say that now, let's make sure you say that at the end, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Truly an honor for, to, to have you here and to talk about this subject. Your legacy, your history, your work, what you are doing is unlike anything I've truly ever seen, sir, it really is. I mean, to go back and look at your CV and the things that you've touched, the words, where you are, your passion for this industry and the passion for food safety is unbelievable. And I'm just, again, honored to have you here. There's a lot to talk about. You've got a story to share with us today that that is unbelievable. I think it's going to touch people in so many ways. It certainly did me. And I think it's going to open up people's eyes and hearts a little bit to the world in which we all live in, which is the world of food safety, whether we want to talk about it or not. Uh, a lot of people don't like this subject matter. They, they're afraid of it. And I don't think we should be afraid of it. I think we should be embracing it. We should be talking about it. And we should be working to make changes in this world to benefit everybody. So with that being said, I hope you're excited about being here. I got a thousand questions for you. And I know that you're a pro at doing this. So this should be a fun conversation. I am ready when you are. Fire out. Here we go. So let's talk. Let's get started about all this stuff if we can, because again, this is such a powerful topic. Let's talk about where food safety was you know, back in say 1993, you know, uh, versus where we're, where we're sitting around today, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of throw a little bit of knowledge about where things were and where things are and more, and maybe if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Well, you know, food safety, uh, was a lot of stuff we took for granted, a lot of assumptions being made there. And a lot of it was based on the fact that we used to live a lot closer to our sources. We had relationships with our, our butchers. We had, uh, you know, grocery stores we bought our food from and we bought raw foods and we would make them uh, into, you know, recipes and meals at home. And we live closer to the source. Whereas today we live so far from the sources of our foods. We have foods that come from all over the world, spices, ingredients, and it's not just the raw ingredients. It's the ready to eat foods, the commercially packaged foods that so 
much dominate our grocery stores now. And yeah. we don't even have just grocery stores and restaurants. Since about 2015, uh, the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics has shown that Americans now spend more money on food that's prepared outside of the home than they do on food that they will purchase to prepare in the home. Wow. The pandemic has shown we have the ability to buy food on an app and have it have a third party do our grocery shopping for us or have it delivered for us from the grocery store or from the restaurant. Uh, there's so many different ways in which consumer behavior has changed in addition to how industry has changed. Um, that, that food safety has become um, a, a bigger issue. Now, mind you, the only time we really talked about food safety uh, was was with Upton Sinclair's 1906 book, right. The Jungle. And we pretty much didn't talk about food safety in the United States uh, until, you know, between 1906 and, and 1993, um, except ironically in terms of making sure that our astronauts had safe food when they went off into space and when our submarines uh, uh, crews had safe food because literally with nuclear reactors, the only limiting factor in terms of how long a submarine can stay submerged and do its job was um, if the crew ran out of food or if they got sick from the food that fed, you know, that the, they ate. Yeah. Um, and uh, 1993 came along and all of a sudden the world became aware of the fact that, that we are far more vulnerable to foodborne pathogens than we thought we were. And they were associated with, with fast food restaurants and hamburgers and beef, this idea of of beef, you know, tied to what is American and what is masculinity at the time could could uh, literally not only render us vulnerable, uh, but when we're talking about the deaths of children, and that was what was, you know, dominating the, the now the new 24-hour news cycle uh, 30 years ago. Um, and then with social media, you know, the growth of food safety culture mirrors the growth of social media over the past three decades to the point where consumers are now considered stakeholders in the food industry. They were not considered stakeholders in the, in the bigger sense in terms of food. You just bought food. You didn't have any say in it. You didn't right. have any political power. You didn't have any, you know, any, any, uh, impact, if you will, in terms of food policies and food safety. And today it's a completely different world. Yeah, it is. And I talk about this all the time. It's like, how do we value food? And your point's really valid. We didn't really think too hard about the way we value food up until 93 started changing that, diet, that, that conversation. And even more so in the last 10 years, we probably have gained more value understanding our food. And, and, and some of that I think is probably attributed perhaps to the organic movement in some ways where people were starting to recognize the conversation around food. I think that probably helped a little bit, but you're right. It, it, it's, as I said earlier, it's a subject that a lot of people just don't want to deal with. Well, Todd, I guarantee you're going to resonate with this. When you and I were kids, the only question we probably asked about food was, what was the toy inside the cereal box? Cereal, yeah, 100%. That was it. You know, we looked at the idea of, is it the taste that I want? Is it the amount that's going to fill me up, make me happy? And can I afford it? Today, those questions have been added to with questions around quality and safety and defense and sustainability and and authenticity. But there's mm -hmm. also other questions that really have nothing to do with food safety, if you will. The idea of, you know, 
the CEO of this company? Are they for or against this political movement? Do they support this uh, group or that group? Do they donate uh, or fund this idea or that idea? You know, do do uh, are they pro this or anti that? And you think that those issues, you know, we're talking like you know the idea of letting guns in the grocery store, or letting guns in the restaurant, or allowing women to breastfeed in the restaurant, or, or supporting same-sex rights or, or uh, discrimination issues. These things, in and of themselves, have nothing to do with the safety or quality of food, but they have everything to do with what consumers hold on to in terms of the idea that today's consumers see that the money that they spend on food is, in a way. It's as if they're voting with their food money. Yeah. I can vote for this issue or that issue. I can spend my money with this company or that company, this brand or that brand. Um, same exact way as if I go into the polling booth. Yeah, 100%. No, it's, it's a super good, super accurate point. You're 100% on, on point with it because I believe that, that one of the best ways we implement change, period, is with our dollar. And your food dollar is something that we just don't take seriously as a company. I mean, you could take a look at, at school nutrition and don't, you know, we're, we're, I'm so pleased to see the changes that we're making, but we act as if we just reinvented the wheel by saying, hey, we're going to cut out sugar in food, which was unrestricted up until this point. I mean, come on, kids. We, you know, we're not, it's, we've got to be thinking much bigger and much broader. Do you think we're safer today than 30 years ago, or are we just maybe more aware? It's kind of what I'm thinking. Thanks for joining the Todd Versation. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hi, this is Gordon Robertson, CEO of Verdant Technologies. Thank you for listening to Todd Versations. Our innovative post-harvest solution, Harvest Hold Fresh, is a game changer in delivering longer-lasting produce from crop to cart. Our patent technology slows the clock, extending the shelf life of fruits and vegetables, helping to preserve them at their peak. By simply inserting a sheet of Harvest Hold Fresh into packaging after harvest, our solution works to significantly reduce waste, deliver return on investment, and offer robust sustainability benefits in the perishable produce supply chain. That's a winning proposition for the grower, the shipper, the retailer, the consumer, and our planet. Contact us today and let us help you change your fresh future with this one sheet wonder. Harvest Hold Fresh from Verdant Technologies. I definitely agree that we're more aware. I definitely agree that, you know, the if you look at the idea of a finger on the pulse of food safety culture amongst consumers, uh, the fact that we see memes and viral videos and social media influencers talking about food safety, uh, and these are people that have no professional or academic background in food safety. Uh, this is a good sense of where we are in terms of that. Uh, in terms of are we safer, I do believe we're safer in terms of meat and poultry regulated by the USDA. But realize that's a small percentage of our food. The vast majority of our food is regulated by the FDA. And right. when we look at the fact that, um, you know, we have, we don't just have two agencies, we really have nearly 15 federal agencies that play a role in food safety. And the FDA doesn't do all the inspecting. They rely on the states to do the inspection within, you know, companies and, and uh, restaurants and grocery stores within their states. So, okay, well, there's 50 jurisdictions. But on top of that, we still have tribal reservations, military bases, university campuses. There's upwards of 3,000 different jurisdictions when it comes to food safety in the United States. And they're not all on the same playbook. 
Some jurisdictions are literally using the foods, uh, the, the, the um, FDA's model food code, if you will. There are different versions of it. Some people, some, some places they're using versions dated back to the 1990s. There's other places that are using the more modern versions, the, you know, the, the later, um, you know, 2017, 2019 area uh, versions of, of the food code. There's some that, you know, they kind of line item adoption here. They don't adopt this. They don't adopt that. So in reality, if you look at the idea of food safety by zip code, um, you know, a cross country tour or drive, if you will, um, is not going to find you at the same level of safety uh, everywhere you go. And uh, at the same time, you know, we're not just talking about meat and poultry. Uh, as right. I mentioned, there's ready to eat foods, there's produce. We've seen a lot of produce, romaine lettuce and cantaloupe and so many uh, produce items uh, fall into the idea of culprit foods behind, behind outbreaks and recalls. There's uh, the ready to eat foods, the commercially packaged goods. There's foods that are delivered directly to the house, whether it be like in a box that you have to uh, take the ingredients and prepare them yourselves. Uh, ready to eat that comes directly to the house or it's delivered through uh, third-party delivery. Uh, there's also ghost kitchens now that we have right. to deal with. There's so many multiple dimensions. You know, it's like the, the Marvel universe. You talk about like the multiverse kind of stuff. Um, it's almost like that in terms of food. There are so many different dimensions or universes of of how people are interacting with the food that they get it's no longer you know you go back though decade after decade after decade and it was that you know your food didn't come likely farther than your own county probably definitely not from you know outside of your own state oh yeah and, and you would be preparing it yourself at home uh, but our, our our distance now between where we get the food and where it's prepared has grown rapidly. And I think that that is part of what is complicating the ability to say we are safer today than we were in the past. I think it's going to be an always evolving situation in terms of our relationship with food. And thus, not only the last journey, the last mile of journey, if you will, for our food, but for that of food safety as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're hundred percent right. I mean, I, I just looked at this stat and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to butcher it, but I'll get pretty damn close. 100 plus years ago, your food came within 150 miles of where you lived. And now it's, you know, debatable whether it's 1500 miles. And I remember the stat clearly that 100% of the apples grown, 100% of the apples consumed in Iowa, you know, 100 and something years ago were grown in the state. And now it's, you know, a single digit percentage at that, right? It's a drastic change. Well, I would think that you would agree that we're never going to stop having food safety issues. That's just not going to ever go away. And when yeah. you take a look at what the CDC estimates have been very consistent about their estimates over time. 48 million people get sick with foodborne illnesses. That's basically one in six Americans. 128,000 people hospitalized. 3,000 people die from it, right? That's a big thing. And, I, and so the question I want to throw at you is, is a tough one, I think, to answer, but I'm going to throw it out anyways. How many people get sick by not necessarily eating the food, but in coming in contact with someone that perhaps is compromised? So this is when you start breaking these numbers down, I'm glad you point out that these numbers have been relatively consistent for three decades. Um, there is an indicator in terms of are we safer or not, right? All the changes in law and policy, but the, the, the technology that we use to collect more data has shown some light in different things. You know, everyone can become sick, but the data has shown that it is the most vulnerable populations, the very young, the elderly, 
mm-hmm. those who are pregnant, and those with compromised immune systems that are most likely to become uh, the ones who report their illness, who are hospitalized, and who die. But when we start breaking things down, uh, I work with doctors who say, look, the medical professionals need to say it's either in the gut or it's not. Right. Leave the determination of how it got there for the health department to focus on. However, health department information has shown that there are areas where, I mean, I know doctors who say they see E. coli more from people who get it through waterborne exposure, like a swimming pool, a public pool, a, a water park, a you know, water slide park, a swimming hole, whatever, than they do see it in terms of people who got it from eating food. Right. But it's not just eating food uh, in terms of how people come into contact uh, because it's this oral fecal route. Literally, the animals have the uh, pathogen in their bodies, in their intestines. Uh, and as you imagine, they're eating food off the ground. It's in their intestines. They are uh, eliminating food, uh, basically their, their cow poop, and they're walking around it. And it's on their hide. Where does the meat come from? The meat comes from the areas between the intestine and the hide. And so right. it's very easy to cross-contamination. But also, the animal feces now becomes susceptible to not only uh, becoming uh, uh, or to, to contaminating uh, water that could be used in agricultural ir- irrigation. And this is what we started to see with the romaine lettuce, uh, but, but uh, you know, so many other ways in which people are impacted now. So it's not just eating the food. It's also person-to-person contact. The idea of we are also animals. We have an oral fecal route. If we're right. sick with a foodborne pathogen and we're not washing our hands, we can pass it on to surfaces and directly to other people. And literally in 1993, the doctors, while the, the company was saying the outbreak is over, the doctors were saying they were expecting another wave of patients because of the person-to-person contact. Contact. Um, you know, the adults that were, it's just a stomach, it's just a stomach flu, it's just a nuisance, but they were passing the pathogen on to their younger children. Another thing I want to point out is when we look at listeria outbreaks, these are like outbreaks tied to lunch meats, ready to eat lunch meats and cheeses. Um, uh, I almost never see a, a CDC final report that doesn't include the idea of a miscarriage or a stillborn child, the idea that the, the mother got sick and the mother, you know, maybe got mildly ill or clearly recovered, but it resulted in a miscarriage uh, because the, uh, the impact of the pathogen on the fetus. Wow. Wow. I mean, this is a heavy topic, kids. I'm telling you, that's why I just have such an honor to have Dr. Tetweiler here to talk about this. Let's get into the, 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 the crux of the story and, and where you, the path that you're on today and why you're on the path you're on today. Would you please share with our listeners the story of your son, Riley? Yeah. So uh, in uh, 1993, I had just uh, gotten off of two tours on a submarine. I was a nuclear engineer. I was 24 years old. And like all 24-year-olds, I thought I was, you know, immortal, I guess. Uh, And like all people who operate a nuclear reactor, a propulsion plant on a billion-dollar submarine during the 80s, you think you're pretty smart. Um, But uh, I had a a wife and, at the time, a nine-year-old stepson and a 16-month-old son, and we relocated uh, to the uh, area just kind of north of Seattle. 
and uh, there was news of an outbreak and I bits and pieces of information were coming out and you know we had these conversations okay well let's avoid uh, fast food restaurants let's avoid hamburgers let's avoid this specific restaurant and I assumed that my nine-year-old was more likely to become sick from it as my 16-month-old son Riley had never eaten hamburger right why would we start now and um, go to pick up uh, Riley one day from daycare and uh there was a note on the door saying that another kid had tested positive for E. coli and to look for these symptoms. And I kid you not, we saw those symptoms that night. Um, and, um, you know, took him in to be seen and he was tested right away. Uh, but back in 1993, it took 48 hours for test results to come back. Yep. So they asked us to bring the, you know, bring, bring him back the next morning. And, and um, that is what started uh, 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 only a very few weeks, less than a month of him being seen and being admitted to the hospital, him being admitted to the pediatric uh, unit, him being airlifted to Children's Hospital, admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit, being taken in for exploratory surgery, where they learned that um, a great majority of his Intestines had been completely destroyed by this pathogen. Uh, they removed his tested uh, his intestines, and uh, he was put into a, a medically induced coma where he spent the last uh, few weeks of his life. We, you know, uh, I went from holding him on a hospital bed um, as he would look at a IV bag hanging from a pole, and he would call out to it. Uh, Baba, um, you know, in the earliest days. Um, and that was his 16 month old little boy word for bottle. bottle. And I, I realized that he wanted normalcy. He wanted comfort. He wanted, uh, you know, he wanted to, to, to go back to the way things were. Uh, I remember seeing him being put on to a stretcher um, and strapped in and the emerge the, uh, you know, the, um, the space blanket put over him uh, as they loaded him onto a helicopter to be flown about 90 miles south to, to Seattle. Um, seeing him coming out of surgery at Sherlin's hospital, um, you know, here's this little boy body and it was just dwarfed in this hotel, uh, this, 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 this whole setup in, in the hospital room where mm-hmm. there's wires and tubes and monitors and, you know, just, it, there were, literally wasn't even enough room uh, for all the equipment that was being brought in, the dialysis, the, just so much equipment. Um, uh, and I remember, you know, again, this was 1993. We didn't have cell phones with, with you know, cameras and video cameras. And right. Stuff. Um, you know, seeing him again, once he, after the doctors realized he was no longer getting oxygen into his blood and he was literally, um, his brain was starved for oxygen and um, it almost became, you know, well, it became pointless to keep him on life support at, at a certain point. There was no oxygen getting into his brain and they disconnected him from his life support and uh, was able to hold him again, you know, wrapped in a blanket. But you keep thinking that, you know, I smell his hair. I'm looking at him. I feel his skin. 
I'm waiting for his eyes to open. I'm waiting for his chest to rise and fall. And that never happened. Um, and then to see him one last time being carried in the world's smallest coffin at, uh, at his funeral. And, um, you know, I have images of some of these things. I have the, uh, the images from the news coverage that showed him being put onto the helicopter. I have the images of, from his funeral where it was literally covered live. Um, those are the last images I have of my son. And, um, you know, immediately after uh, we left the hospital, we had um, we had someone take out his car seat and everything related to him from the car because the drive an hour and a half or so north with uh, a literal and figurative things in the rearview mirror that uh, would not make that drive safe. Uh, it was nothing that I thought about in terms of, you know, planning. Got home to receive a phone call from Air Force One. President Bill Clinton had actually been on his way to visit us in the hospital, uh, having talked to him on live national television right after he was, uh, right after the inauguration about what was going on. Um, but en route to uh, Seattle Children's Hospital, my son had died. And he and I talked. He wanted to talk father to father. What do we do? Where do we go from here? Where do we, where do we go? And I said that I couldn't, I couldn't see myself not trying to help others. I also thought that this would be something that, you know, now, 30 years from now, I wouldn't be doing this. I figured laws, policies, government, science, technology, industry would bring it into this. Um, but there was a powerful message that um, came out of that conversation that I have held on to um, and kind of modified over the years. The idea that I lost my son, but, and I'll never be able to do anything but agree and acknowledge to that statement. But do I want to live in a world where the universe can say that my son lost his father? Right. What does that mean? How, how do yeah. you stay a father in that situation? That's really driven what I've done in the three decades since. 100% it has. And share a little bit about, you know, what that does mean to you a little bit, maybe a little more. I mean, it's really become, you know, I, I talk often about we're on a path in life and we don't know where that path takes us. We have choices along that path, go right, go left, go up, go down, go back, whatever it might be, but we don't necessarily know where we're heading. And I think that your story is so, you know, to, to be a part of what you went through, to be a part of this food safety issue, all the things we've already just touched on, you know, so far, is overwhelming to even consider as a parent and overwhelming to even try to imagine, let, let alone tie a shoe, let alone walk in your shoe. Um, but how have you carried on? I mean, cause this became your life. This became your life's path. Um, a lot of trial and error. Um, you know, I, I, I went back to university. I got certain degrees um, to build on my, my science background, my engineering background. Um, you know, I, I ended up becoming a teacher, uh, for 16 years, uh, math and science and history teacher. And while I was doing that, however, I was flying back and forth from Seattle to Washington, DC, as I was serving as a special advisor to the secretary of agriculture. Uh, I was working to, you know, be a, a food safety advocate, uh, raising a family 
and you know trying to uh, move on from this. There definitely is phases of of grieving and 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 moving on that one has to deal with. The things that I do today, um, I am a professor. I've earned I earned my doctorate in law and policy, focusing on food safety. Uh, I'm a professor. Uh, I, I speak around the country. I speak abroad uh, about this. I serve. I'm currently the chair of the National Environmental Health Association's Food Safety Program Committee. Uh, I, I'm on numerous advisory boards and editorial boards. Um, um, a lot of what I do today, I couldn't do. I couldn't do 30 years ago. Um, mm. And it's not about qualifications. It's about the idea of being in a uh, a, a place where you can you can focus emotionally on things differently. Um, there's a, a you know there's a process, and, and we can talk about culture in different ways. Uh, are you familiar with the, the the movie Highlander? Yeah, that's with the uh, what's Sean Connery. Yeah, Sean Connery. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. the guy the guy who lives forever. Right. Yeah. Um, remember, there was this whole major story element about how the Highlander, uh, Christopher Lambert, uh, the actor who played him, um, you know, he would fall in love with someone and watch them grow old and die. Die, right. Yeah. Right. There was incredible soundtrack by Queen. And there's this one phrase from one of the songs um, uh, dealing with the idea of outliving who he loves. And the line is, it's always a rainy day without Mm. I've thought about that so many times over the last three decades. The idea that at first you're just immersed in this idea of being in that rain, very much associated with depression. Sure. But I, 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 I have worked with and talked with and, and you know, I've worked so hard on myself uh, and I have the support of incredible people around me. Uh, and, and today I can say that, look, I can be um, successful. I can uh, see progress. I can inspire others. I can teach others. I can even be happy while still looking at the window across the way and seeing that it's raining outside. It doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be that that rain takes me away from or prevents me from doing what needs to be done in the act of, of uh, you know, having that moment where I can be influencing the next generation of food safety uh, leadership. I can be um, reminding people the why behind what we do. I can help impart the idea of the true burden of disease and make sure that we're not doing something that's just the idea of the quick and easy answer that solves our current short-term needs, that we can look at it in terms of the bigger legacy, um, in terms of uh, what we do as a, as a government, what we do as a nation, what we do as a, a, a as a company or corporation, as an industry in terms of food safety. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, what you went through in 1993, you know, Riley was one of four people, I believe, that that perished in this outbreak. And it was by far the, the first real big public um, thing that we've ever had in this country, quite frankly. And, you know, I, I think about your story and I've read your story and I've listened to you speak uh, online a little bit and got my head wrapped around it again, trying to just put a shoelace, you know, through the shoe, trying to understand the walk that you've done. But one of the things that I think about when I think about food safety, I think about the work that you've done and what you're trying to accomplish and enlightening people and to really change the world. And you've done it. I mean, you, you know, the accolades, the books, the, you know, all the things you've done, you, you, the lift that you have taken on is 
monumental. It's the work of multiple people, not one. It's unbelievable what you've done. And it's just, it's, it's amazing the way that you've honored your son and the way that you've honored trying to make a change in this country, you know, quite frankly. And I think it's incredibly powerful. Thank but you. How do we, yeah, no, it's, dude, I, I, I can't even come up with enough words to give you enough props. Believe me, Bruno. But how do we get folks to realize that we can't let our past be our only guide? going forward, right? That we, that we must lead and we must drive forward. And I think when it comes to food safety, that question is, is really relevant. Well, you know, I can't, uh, and I meet with companies, I meet with food safety leaders, I meet with people in the food safety industry. I can't go into a room and spend an hour talking about the history of my son. That is, it may be eye-opening, but um, that does not set the idea of, you know, what are the takeaways? Where, where do we go from here? What are the next steps? Right. How do I, how do I um, implement this? How do I impart this into what I'm doing? Right. Um, so, you know, we, we look at certain things. Um, you, 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 you can't ignore the past, right? I mean, people will say, well, you know, I mean, you go to the airport some places and they'll say, oh, you know, our city won the Super Bowl in 1972. Here's a big banner, right? right. So you, you tend to hold on to those great, those great trophy moments, right? Sure. Um, this was the best year ever, you know, kind of a thing, right? But if we want to look at the idea of legacy, if we want to look at the idea that, you know, the, the people, so, so the company, the fast, um, you know, I, I'm, there's, there's forgiving and forgetting. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I can ever forgive or forget what happened, but I can look at and even respect the actions that they took afterwards in terms of making sure this would never happen again to them, making sure they were investing in terms of, of new science and technology and all that kind of stuff. And recently to talk with the leaders of this company, and I said, look, you today can look back at that event and clearly understand the why behind what your company did in response to that event 30 years later, you know, what happened 30 years ago. But the people who are going to be in a position of power, uh, the leadership roles 30 years from now are likely not even going to have been born when this event took place in 1993. 93, and, yeah. and if you want your legacy to continue, if you want to be seen as a company that held on to, they truly valued this issue, the lesson they learned and the stance and the, the direction they took, the momentum they built after this, if you want that to be the legacy seen 30 years from now, in 2053, mm -hmm. then you can't ignore the why behind. Why did you do this? Why did you prioritize in this? Why did you invest in this? Why did you hold this thing so great a value? And when we look at numbers and we look at the things that are easy to, you know, bars and graphs and statistics and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's you know, in some ways, you, you know, data-driven decision-making and looking at numbers to really get a sense of things, but you strip away the faces, the stories, the families, the meanings behind things. And so we have to make sure that we embrace not only the bright spots, but even those painful moments and those conflicting themes and use that to, to forge and solidify the compass that we want to look in terms of that road ahead and the legacy that we ultimately want to build. Yeah. These are tough words. These are tough words. The difference between um, 
beliefs and values, the difference between short-term and long-term, the difference between, you know, like return on investment and cost-benefit analysis. And, but there's bigger issues to deal with. We can have economic recovery and magazines and newspapers will talk about a company and their economic recovery. How have they rebound after this event? But those same magazines and newspapers rarely talk about how did those families, those 3,000 families that you mentioned, uh, right. the chair forever empty at the family table. They never seem to talk about how those families will rebound. The families that are living with the child that survived and was discharged will live with lifelong medical complications, right. frozen forever in time in terms of their mental and physical development and, and capabilities, uh, and will live with this stigma, this, this you know, this, this, uh, this lifelong uh, uh, awareness of, of a failure. And, you know, I talked with a family once who, um, I talked with a lot of families, uh, but this one family, uh, I talked with the mom, she shared a, a, a story about her son had E. coli. He lived this great, but while he was on dialysis, I think he was four years old at the time, he ended up having a stroke and lost the use of one of his arms. Years later, he was talking about how, um, you know, he can't play like the other kids in the playground because he doesn't have the ability to use one of his arms and how he wishes that someone in the food company uh, had said something or done something. He ends up drawing a crayon drawing of a superhero in flight. We're talking tights and cape and said that if someone in the food company had, had prevented him from being unlike all the other kids, had made sure that he was safe, that that person would be his hero. And in this world, again, of Marvel and DC superheroes, he didn't draw someone in a suit or a lab coat or a hairnet. No. He drew someone literally as a superhero in flight. And, you know, that really is a message we need to make sure that our future leaders, our food safety quality assurance experts, those who have a role and that, that who plays a role is really widening these days, realizes that their role in food safety is seen as Herculean, as Herculean. The, the effort that they put into food safety is literally the difference between life and death uh, for those uh, other consumers. Everyone can become sick, but again, it's those most vulnerable populations uh, that are going to live with those lifelong complications from it. And it's these conversations that stem from my son's story in terms of what I teach and what I lecture on, what I write about, in terms of how we go about doing this. And when I talk to the public, you know, a lot of people are public and they always ask me, well, what foods do I avoid? I'm like, well, if it was easy enough to avoid foods, then if you look at my 30 years experience, if I avoided everything that was ever involved in food safety, there'd be nothing left to eat. But I also tell parents that it's the thing to be afraid of. I mean, Todd, how many times have you heard or maybe even said the idea of, hey, child, look both ways before you cross the street. Right. Hey, child, put on your seatbelt before we go somewhere. Hey, son, daughter, getting on the internet, you know, be careful for people that are online predators or whatever, and be careful of your information. It doesn't mean that we don't go on the car rides. It doesn't mean we don't cross the street. It doesn't mean we don't go on the internet. It just means that we're aware of consequences for our actions and that there's inherent risks in them. Right. We need to have those conversations about food as well. The idea of don't just involve your, well, either, you know, don't have your kids be some completely isolated from the kitchen, but you know, you see all these TV shows or videos of people cooking. I never see hands. I never see gloves. 
temperature, you know, thermometers being used to check temperatures. It's some of these very critical steps that are the difference between your food being safe or not. Right. Even the idea of telling kids, hey, before you unload the dishwasher, make sure you wash your hands or, hey, you know, you just handle that raw chicken. Make sure you wash your hands and and don't use the same cutting board and knife as you start preparing the salad. Right. Um, you know, kind of thing. Oh, why? Why should I do that, mom? Why should I do that, dad? Well, because, you know, we, we need to be careful. And here's sure. why. That yeah. is the difference between being afraid of things or, or focusing solely on the short term versus the idea of looking at the bigger picture and saying, look, we all have responsibilities and there are consequences, good or bad, for our actions. 100%. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, America's, Americans expect the producers to do the heavy lifting for them, right? I mean, they, they, they want it out of sight, out of mind mentality. We take for granted that there's a they and them involved or whatever it is until they or them don't take, you know, don't take care of what happens. Right. And I think a lot of ways too, food safety, um, if food safety had a better narrative or a marketing campaign versus, uh, you know, it, 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 an offensive campaign versus always playing on a defensive campaign, which is what it always does. It's always playing defense against the narrative in a lot of ways. I think, I think about, or, you know, local and organic, you know, if, if they had that same kind of warm and fuzzy feel to it, where do you think food safety would be today? If that narrative was switched around? Well, uh, there's, there's a couple issues here. One is that um, we all depend on food. Food is a fabric of our coming of age journey. You know what I mean? So we mm -hmm. can't, we can't avoid food um, and any negative connotation around food. People worry about the idea of, Oh, we, you know, our company doesn't want people to think that there could be a problem with our product. We want to sell, sell, sell kind of a thing. And even, you know, 30 years ago when we were working with the USDA on food safe handling labels for meat, if you buy a raw you know, meat, poultry, there's a label that says cook thoroughly, refrigerate leftovers, wash your hands, all that kind of stuff. Um, back then, the industry was like, you can't tell people there could be a problem with meat. Um, kind of a crazy concept to think about. But, um, you know, when you look at the idea of uh, what are certain messages out there? I have to tell people sometimes in the food industry that it's not an us versus them kind of thing because everyone who works in the food industry Every new employee comes from the pool of people who are labeled as consumers. Right. So it's not like, well, there's people who work in the food people and in the food industry, and there's people who consume food, and they're two completely different audiences. No, they're one and the same, right? Uh, and uh, another thing I talk about in terms of, and you brought up a good point about the messages. You know, um, in 1993, the people ultimately responsible for that outbreak, literally in front of the cameras, said we broke Washington state law. And as a result, people died. And I don't know about you, but when I grew up, there was this message of, you know, like if you walk into a bank with your finger in your, your pocket yeah. and say that it's a gun and some 87 year old security guard has a heart attack and died, even though there was no trigger for you to pull in the committing of a crime, someone died, you will be held responsible and sure. legally, you know, consequence facing for that crime. And yet here, there were no state or federal charges filed against the company. Imagine 30 years later, what message that sent. You know, I was in the courtroom. With, there was an issue a while back called the, the Peanut Corporation. Oh, there's a company called the Peanut Corporation of America. They had a salmonella outbreak tied to peanuts. Yeah. And this case was so huge. I was involved in it in terms of con uh, conversations with the owner of the company, conversations with the families of those nine people who died and the estimated 
22,000 Americans who got sick from this. Um, I was in the courtroom uh, during the, the trial and sentencing and during the sentencing, um, the, the lawyer for the owner said, well, your honor, um, we know you're probably going to have to sentence my client to jail for three months. Three months was the, the, the largest amount of jail time that someone with radical failures uh, in food safety had ever, sent, had ever uh, served. Three, wow. And that had only taken place right before then. And then we're talking about 2016, 2015 era, right? area, right? Um, so, you know, we know you're at least going to have to, Your Honor, you know, sentence our client to um, three months in, in jail. He was convicted on, on 62 federal felony accounts uh, of, of obstruction of justice and wire fraud, all these different things, responsible for the death of nine, the deaths of nine people. The shock in that courtroom when he was sentenced to 28 years in federal prison was incredible. And part of that shock was because you go back to, again, 1993, when there was no punishment for that. Imagine the, the, um, the message that would have sent. When we have companies, uh, you remember the Chipotle outbreaks? Yeah. Right? Uh, America's largest federal fine for a food safety failure like this, $25 million dollars. Well, to you and me, $25 million seems like a hell of a lot of money. But to a major corporation, you know, that's like that's a like write-off. A, yeah. It's like it's like a day of the cash register, you know, collectively, yeah. if you will, from all their branches. It's like at what point is it not really a um uh, 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 a level of of uh you know the 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 pen versus the uh you know, the, 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 the character of the stick, the pin versus a sword kind of a thing in terms of when does it no, no longer become a deterrence because it's like, ah, oh, what's the worst that could happen, right? Um, you need to take into consideration that the bigger picture in terms of the worst that can happen. And part of that is beyond economic, it's beyond punish, punishment. It is the idea of the impact on public health, the impact on brand trust and reputation, but most importantly, the impact on those families whose lives are forever changed as a result of mostly preventable failures, mostly yeah. the idea of these lifelong consequences that are tied to what was just taken for granted in terms of uh, the daily norm. Unbelievable. And to think that, that, that Jack in the Box stood in front of the camera and said what they said, and then all of a sudden, you know, get nothing more than a parking ticket at the end is pretty crazy. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to imagine, but you know, it kind of leads me to where I want to talk about next a little bit, which is, you know, we regulate, but do we actually enforce, you know, do we hold those that accountable? Because I think it's something that perhaps we are more now today than ever, because we are living in a much more litigious world in, in the past. But I mean, there's issues of collusion out there. There's cover-ups out there. You got the FDA over here versus the USDA over here versus the state. I mean, there's just a lot going on there. Talk to me if you wouldn't mind just, you know, almost like, you know, how are we working against doing the right thing? I guess is a way of looking at it. Um, it's, it's a difficult, there's, I could literally talk for two hours on this exact question here. Um, you know, consumers hold that the industry and the government has responsibility. The industry holds that the consumer has responsibility and neither are wrong. Yeah. You know, um, at the same time, um, as complicated as it is, it's likely to become more complicated. And if we 
understand that this is just normal and um but we can change the culture around things mm-hmm. we can have a difference and here is one thing i think is very important you know most of what goes on in terms of food safety is reactive i've literally over the last 3 decades borne witness to a seemingly endless cycle of crisis and reform if we just look at some of the numbers like you pointed out 3000 Americans die every year. Uh first off that's just the American numbers. There's larger numbers in terms of globally. Sure. Um but 3000 a year times 30 years that's 90,000 Americans that have died to mostly preventable outbreaks. That's 90,000 families that are living with a chair for every mm-hmm. empty at the family table. And yeah. we start looking at it like this, this idea of being reactive. Um the more time it takes for a company to respond for the government to change things of that we see two things happen options decrease and liabilities increase mhm and you know you don't have a recall that is initiated because someone just wanted to do it you don't have an outbreak this call just because there may be someone sick every time you hear about an outbreak or recall that is a response this is literally the work of the county health department that is dealing with a cluster of illnesses that's reporting to the state and sometimes those states are communicating and realizing that there's a multi-state outbreak and now either the state or the federal government is pushing this company this industry in some cases uh to initiate a recall and start investigating an outbreak in that context you start looking at the idea of consumers are but canaries in the coal mine yeah the idea of we don't do things until someone's already been harmed and how do we put the genie back in the bottle when these things happen um it's not like people stop eating you know no. it's not like it's not like you know shut down the airspace or shut down the shut down the highway or whatever people are still going to be eating even during the pandemic Not only did we find ways to make our restaurants and retailers still be able to operate, but we started calling people who work in the food industry essential workers and we started realizing how important they were in terms of the labels we put on them. Uh it becomes a very complicated issue when you can't just stop doing things because people still got to eat. You know, life, right. liberty and the pursuit of happiness involves starting the day off with a good, you know, nutritious meal kind of a thing, right? So it is a very complicated thing, but the idea of of how we communicate about this and how we start prioritizing and investing in food safety as a, as a nation as a company and even as consumers has to change this change in the our culture around food safety uh, and we can see similar patterns right look at mothers against drunk driving uh you know back in the days when you know parents were fed up with how many of teenage how many teenagers were being killed on the highway if not from drinking and driving themselves but from being hit head on by a drunk driver and right. the the drunk driving campaigns you had the smoking campaigns you know what people still drive and people still drink and people still smoke and people there's a lot of things that people still do but there is a significant change in the culture around these ideas and people's awareness of the consequences for their actions much more so today than in the past and i think we can start to see that with food even the pandemic played a significant role in changing how people were talking about hand washing and contamination and temperatures and and safety and, and invisible pathogens you know these these invisible things that are out there 
um, you know, that, that we have to take, uh, you know, we, we, we can no longer take for granted. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, very well said. And you're right. This is a very, this, this topic, the question can go deep into the weeds, right? There's no two ways about it. And I find it interesting too, at a lot of times in, in my history, dealing with some of these things when it comes to food safety, you're dealing with, you know, by the time it becomes a food safety issue, that product is so far out of the stream of commerce. You can't even get, you can't even figure out where it is. You, you're, you're backpedaling the entire way. You're really not serving the public in a really good manner. And, and it almost to the point where they, they, to my, what I said earlier, people are just trying to cover their asses yeah. as opposed to solve issues. It's, it's, it's crazy. And no, and, and I, when I talk to folks inside my sphere, you know, CEOs, presidents, different folks, food safety is probably one of the things that they fear the most. They really do. It's, it's the one thing that this, everybody knows a little bit about. I mean, we and I talked about this before. They don't ever want to talk about it. It's just like, I don't want to talk about food. Safety. Okay, great. Go take care of that. I don't want to know about it. It's just, it's become so taboo. But yet it is such a it's such an important issue to really embrace and change positively because sure. you know look we, we can go back and think about the spinach recall you can think about all these different things that have happened it just it everybody suffers right every brand suffers throughout a recall and those kind of things well you remember I mean, the whole notion of the idea that the consumer is always right the customer is always right yeah yeah well that's seriously gone by the wayside as soon as for sure customers started asking questions is it organic are there GMOs? Is it local? Is it cage free? Is it is it you know uh, is it farmed? Is it is it this? Is it this? Is it gluten free? Is it kosher? Is it halal? Is it this? And a lot of that has been seen as well. That's your preference, right? Right. And the idea of oh well, allergen. I'm 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 allergic to onions. I'm allergic to sesame now. Uh, sesame seeds now. I'm allergic to eggs. I'm allergic to this. Are you really allergic or is it just a preference, right? Or we'll right. just cook it out of it. No, you can't cook it out of it, right? Um, or the idea of food safety. Now, food safety, you know, it's like, well, that's a nicety. And we look at it in terms of, you know, is food safety a premium or is food safety required for all foods from all makers at all price points for all, you know, for all families kind of a thing? You know, is it even food if it's not safe? Uh, right. I don't know when the last time you flew was, but I guarantee you didn't pick an airline that is known for not being safe. Um, you know, you, you'll hit some bumps along the road or, or you know, uh, along the air flight, I guess, actually, uh, some, some turbulence there. Uh, but ultimately, you know, no one wants to uh, take off and have uh, um, a, a non-even number of takeoffs Correct. and landings. Correct. Same thing when we're talking about when I was on a submarine in the Navy, we want to have a, an, an even numbers of dives and surfaces. That was, that Correct. was the goal um, yes. kind of a thing. Uh, but, but, you know, we, we talk about this in so many different lights and it's not, it's, it's not a premium. It's not a preference. It's not a privilege. It's not a, a choice uh, food safety, whether it be for, again, the most vulnerable populations or just the idea of everyone, food safety should be the ultimate basic foundation uh, of everything. It's, it's not a good production run. It's not a good sale. It's not a good package. It's not a good meal unless it's a safe meal. Thanks for joining the Todd Versation. And now a word from our sponsor. Hi, this is Gordon Robertson. CEO of Verdant Technologies. Thank you for listening to Toddversations. Our innovative post-harvest solution, Harvest Hold Fresh, is a game changer in delivering longer lasting produce from crop to cart. Our patent technology slows the clock, 
extending the shelf life of fruits and vegetables, helping to preserve them at their peak. By simply inserting a sheet of Harvest Hope Fresh into packaging after harvest, our solution works to significantly reduce waste, deliver return on investment, and offer robust sustainability benefits in the perishable produce supply chain. That's a winning proposition for the grower, the shipper, the retailer, the consumer, and our planet. Contact us today and let us help you change your fresh future with this one sheet wonder. Harvestal Fresh from Verdant Technologies. Well, it goes back to what we touched on earlier. It's really about trying to drive value back into the food system, right? And trying to recognize the value that food has. I ask this question to people all the time. Tell me how you value food. It is a great question to throw people because nobody has an answer. They're perplexed with how you actually answer that question. But, you know, I think about the romaine thing, and I want to touch on this really quickly. You know, I watched that transpire in my in my career. I watched, been a part of that, been a part of that November life cycle that it's lived yeah. for a while. And, and you know, one of the things I found really, really interesting is how quickly everybody rushes to judgment, how quickly we have to change everything, how quickly we have to put all these new implementations in place, whether it's, whether it's you know, a hold and release program, meaning we harvested it, we brought it in, we ran pathogen tests. Once they come back clean, then you can release the product, right? We start, and I've heard all these different scenarios that retailers and people want to get into. What I find fascinating about it, though, is the amount of pushback you get when you say, great, we'll do this program, but it's going to cost you $1.73 a carton to perform these tests, to do all this stuff, because it's not free, right? It's just, you can't just do it out of thin air. And then all of a sudden you get this pushback. Well, ah, no, 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 wait a minute. I don't want to pay for it. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't, don't raise my price. Don't do this. And again, it goes back to this value of the food. It's like, we want to have it one way, but we don't want to pay for it. We don't want to put the value behind it. And to your point, I think if the American consumer could realize it's like, oh, it costs me a dollar more a box or a dollar more, 20 cents a head, five cents a head, whatever the math turns out to be, to have a safer system, they probably be like, okay, I can embrace that, that rationale. But I don't even think the consumers are given that choice and option when you see retailers say, well, I don't want to do that because of the cost. Yeah. You know, the whole idea of, I mean, we all grew up with the idea of uh, buying a piece of steak and it says USDA inspected, and that doesn't mean anything. It's just no. uh, uh, something from that lot. A sample was taken, but uh, it wasn't held. The sample was taken, eventually it was processed. And if it came back uh, as there's a problem, you know, it's, it's tested positive for E. coli kind of a thing, that product's already gone. That product's already yeah. distributed. It's already in the shelves and the freezer aisles, whatever. It's And many times when they have a recall, it's already been consumed. Correct. Um, but but uh, the industry has fought. They do not want to be required to hold on to that product until results come back. And so, but that, that's what the American people believe. They believe that if a restaurant door is open, that it must be passing, um, you know, inspection. And yet there are restaurants that fail horribly inspections yeah. and the health inspectors cannot close that restaurant. All they can do is submit their report to the city council and the city council can take up action kind of right. a thing. Um, there are people that assume that if it's on the shelf at the grocery store, that it must have gone through rigorous testing and inspection and have met, you know, the rigorous controls. That's why people look for labels like kosher uh, certified, organic certified. Those kind of certification organizations and processes are very strict. And if, you've, uh, if you're a company that violates those, it's very difficult to get back into a status that does this. I know people that say that, you know, in terms of food safety, 
they had uh, open heart surgery or they had leukemia treatment and their doctors recommended that they take on uh, a, a kosher diet that they only eat things that are kosher certified because of the rigorous uh, uh protocols involved in gaining that uh, certification, certification that it makes yeah. them more safer. Um, so there are a lot of things, again, we take for granted out there uh, as consumers in terms of what industry does, what industry doesn't do, um, and and what regulations are in place or not in place. There are people that don't understand, and I get it, you know, most people don't understand the difference between the USDA and the FDA and what they regulate. And most mm -hmm. people, you know, think that the FDA is out there doing inspections. The FDA has never done inspections. It's the county and state health departments. Um, and in some cases, there are states where it's their Department of Agriculture, or the other mm -hmm. states, it's the Department of, of Public Health. And it's like, well, does it matter if it's the Department of Public Health or Department of Agriculture? Well, completely different mission statements. Correct. Um, and completely different budgets and completely different sources of funding for this work. And there are states that are highly rated and there are states that are poorly rated in terms of their ability to identify and resolve a foodborne illness uh, outbreak. Uh, I told you about that Peanut Corporation of America yeah. uh, outbreak. And um, the, for the longest time, the federal government was trying to find the source and the company, one of the reasons why they were um, found guilty of obstruction of justice, the company lied about where their production facility was. They didn't know, the federal government didn't know where one of their production facilities were, which is where all the problems were taking place. We're talking about rat infested, bird yeah. poop uh, covered products sitting out in the opening. And here's what's crazy. The location of that plant was in Plainview, Texas. That is the name of the town. <laughs> and the reason why they didn't know to look there is because that plant was not registered with the state as a food manufacturing facility. And when they dug deeper into it, they found over 300 food manufacturing locations not registered with the state as being a food manufacturing uh, facility. Wow. So you have many obstacles to, again, what the consumer thinks of, oh, it's out in the open, it must be safe. Right. There are things that you just don't know. You know, it's like when people ask me, well, what foods do I avoid? You know, well... It's, it's kind of a hard thing to, to talk about. Well, what restaurants do you avoid? Well, that's a, that's a hard question as well. I avoid restaurants I don't know and, and that look dirty, but I also avoid restaurants where if I go to the bathroom and if the bathroom looks dirty, like it's not been touched in two days yeah. uh, and, you know, someone, uh, uh, you know, yeah. exploded everything in the everywhere kind of a thing. I and that's their public facing areas. I don't even want to know what the behind the scenes areas like. I agree with that. Yeah, I, I agree with I agree with that. But you know, dude, it goes back to it's funny because you know we get California. They put ratings up on the door. You know, you a, a rating, B rating, B C. What? And I got to tell you, it surprised me. You go by a place and you look at this thing. It's like I've gone by places that have a C rating in the window, right? Which is you know, I'm assuming C stands for crappy. That's just what I'm going to go with. Um, but there's people in there eating, and I think to myself, it can't. I mean, it just it it can't be that good. It yeah. just can't. No, it's yeah. nuts. It's well, it's, you know, um, the Chipotle restaurants had an A rating on their door when they had their mm -hmm. outbreaks, 2015 to 2018, and the yep. Simi Valley, California restaurant, which was kind of the first one in 2015, um, with their A rating on the door, um, you know, not only did they violate health department protocols in terms of going in and um, destroying, getting rid of everything that was food or consumable related and bleaching down their kitchen, but eliminating evidence to be found by the health department. Right. Um, 
they are also required to uh, have reported to the health department if they had three or more employees with norovirus. When the health department uh, intervened and found out that they not only had uh, um, norovirus going on there, Chipotle had 17 employees. Yeah, I thought it was, I was going to say it was nine, uh, but it's 17. Yeah, 17 employees sick with norovirus, and they had not yet reported it to the health department. Uh, And um, a sad note is that those 17 employees were required now to, uh, you know, refrain from working there until they had their symptoms had been uh, gone for over five days or something like that uh, before they could return to work. The health department reached out to those uh, sick individuals to check in on them. And most of them had been working their second job at some other fast food restaurant. Fast food joint. Yeah, exactly. Because they weren't specifically told to not work at any. They were just not working at Chipotle. Chipotle. So, you know, you can say, look, do I believe a C rating? But at the same time, I can say, do you believe an A rating? Yeah, well, you're right. You're point taken. I, I, I agree with you. But I, I love your, I love you that you walk in and they have this disgusting restroom. You know, the kitchen's just a shithole. There's yeah. no two ways yeah. about it. There's just yeah. no two ways about it. I agree. Yeah. Talk, to, talk to me. Let's switch gears a little bit. Talk to me. And I don't forget, I, I forgot the submarine thing. We're getting into the submarine. Don't worry. I want to talk about this. I think this is super cool. But I want to talk before about this Netflix documentary that you're a part of called Poison. Talk yeah. to me a little bit about it, if you wouldn't mind, how you're, you know, how you're involved. What's it about? Because I think it's, uh, from what I've learned and what you've shared with me, I think this is going to stir the pot and open up some eyes and really call into question everything that we've kind of talked about today, this kind of frame up about what's really out there in the world. Well, in the next several months, we're going to see advertising and uh, a release date for Netflix's documentary called Poisoned. And Poisoned is a look at the 1993 E. coli outbreak that I obviously uh, can can speak as an expert about um, and uh, other families and what happened then. But it also looks at what's happened since then. And Mm -hmm. as my role as someone who's not only observed, but has been involved, like we talked about the romaine lettuce. We talked about uh, on this this interview here. We talked about Chipotle. We talked about Peanut Corporation of America. There's other issues we've talked about um, uh, in that documentary, and it allows me to speak as not only a food safety expert but also as a professor on all these different issues. It continues on to look at some other families that have been impacted in other outbreaks, uh, but most importantly, it looks at the companies behind these and what they're doing, and also looks a it takes a critical look at the USDA and the FDA. I've been able to I just a few weeks ago I watched uh, um, the, the the documentary um, because I was involved in the filming of it. Um, I actually got involved early uh, as a technical advisor. Uh, they were using my book uh, Safety Past Present Prediction as a guide for some areas to look at. Um, it's based on a book, a different book though, called Poisoned, uh, by a man by the name of uh, Jeff Benedict, uh, who wrote about the 1993 E. coli outbreak. Uh, but uh, my book was was able to kind of open their eyes to the idea of, of what are some of the other issues surrounding this over the last three decades uh, that they need to look at. I look at it as something that's going to be very powerful, not only to industry and leaders uh, and to consumers, but also in the classroom. You know, I remember way back when, when I was using documentaries in the classroom as a high school math and science and history teacher, and you look at the idea of what is something that you can teach students that would um, not only impact their understanding of the world, but it could impact them in their personal lives. And right. this, is, this is definitely one of those uh, uh, documentaries that I think is going to go a long way in terms of helping better understand the complexities 
of food safety and um, understanding the true burden of disease and, and the impact on public health and on families behind it. And it was, uh, you know, definitely it's not the first time I've been involved in television productions around food safety and, and uh, you know, print and broadcast media around safety. But uh, I went into talking with the, the producers and the director of this saying that, that um, you know, again, I've, I've used this word already, but the idea of legacy, right. what if the legacy of this documentary is the profound impact that it can have on policymakers, on industry, on consumers, on families? Um, that is what I wanted them to think about as they were putting this together. Don't go for the quick soundbite. Don't go for the gotcha. Don't go for the, the you know, what will make this go viral. Um, perhaps in thinking about the legacy of the story, there are elements that can achieve all that in Correct. terms of the power of their message. Yeah, no, well, we don't need sound bites when it comes to food safety. That that train's left the station. We've lived, I mean, think about it. We've lived in that sound bite world. We've lived in that 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 snippet of, of the things that we've talked about. It's not working, right? We've got to do better at this. We've got to go back to what I said earlier, not going to keep harping on it show after show after show. Start to value food. Start to ask what is valuable to food. If, if, if you think safety is valuable, then what does that mean to your food? And as consumers, what should we expect on that? Don't, don't think that it comes, that it's just, well, you just have to go do it. It's a part of a process of understanding the true dollar amount, the true value, where it comes from, and all those things we have to do to lift, to help educate, to make a better planet. I mean, it's it's such an important yeah. conversation. Yeah. It well, really I mean, these, these, these are all important conversations. Uh, and you look at the idea of what is out there to help people do this. Um, you know, we talked about the submarine. Um, I honestly think that some of the lessons I learned uh, as a nuclear engineer on a submarine working with a crew uh, focusing on, uh, um, you know, serving the better good, the idea of, of protecting the nation. You know, I, I originally served in the Navy because I assumed that someday I would be married and have children. And not that I would prevent my sons from serving in the military, but what if I had the ability to say that perhaps my service in the military made it, made it such that they didn't have to? What right. if my service in the military is part of what what made um, our country, our home, uh, even you know uh, our family safer. And my son Riley was born when I was in the Navy, and it was really hard to justify, uh, you know, during his first nine months when I was out to sea a great amount of time on a submarine. But I always thought that I would have a lifetime to make it up, to spend time with them, uh, to be there as his father. And unfortunately, that didn't come true. That doesn't mean that it undermines everything I did in my service in the mm. Navy, because I do believe that a lot of the lessons that I learned uh, are things that have helped to carry me through. Um, though I don't wear a uniform and, and I'm not a submarine, that idea of service beyond self, service to uh, my nation, and, and the idea of still protecting my family um, are, are some ideals, I guess, that uh, I carried on with from that time. And um, um you know, it makes me a little bit more proud of not only Absolutely. the work that I've done uh, since then, but the work that I did when I was in the Navy. Absolutely. Well, look, you, you, again, I go back to what I said earlier is about being on a path and your path is, is, is legacy driven. Your path is, is about honor. Your life has been about honor. I mean, you serve, when you serve in the military, you know, honor is something that you learn, I think very, very quickly. And I think it's an incredibly important thing to, to think about. And you're continuing to honor and serve. I mean, you're, you're now the executive director of the U.S. Submarine Veterans Charitable Foundation. So you're still incredibly active. Talk a little bit about what that is, and, and if you wouldn't mind, just share with everybody. Sure. So 
There was an organization called the World War II Summary Veterans, but as you can imagine, um, there are not a lot of those around. Um, uh, it's, it's harder and harder to count uh, the number of surviving World War II veterans, let alone the surviving World War II submarine veterans. Uh, so eventually, uh, that organization evolved into uh, the United States Submarine Veterans, Inc., uh, which is a literally um, um, thousands of submarine veterans across the country that come together for one purpose, which is to perpetuate the, the memory, the service, the sacrifice, and the, the honor uh, of those who served in, in, in the United States Navy. Also to uh, uphold the legacy of the over 3,500 uh, sailors who lost their lives uh, in World War II and in two submarines, 52 submarines in World War II. Yeah. Uh, lost uh, two submarines since World War II, um, and 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 countless uh, submarine sailors uh, who who've been lost since uh, since then. Um, you know when they left their community to form a new community under the sea. Um, again, this idea of the invisible uh, enemy uh, and their service. Um, um, the idea of making sure that our communities today are aware of that and that those veterans are, are welcomed and uh, that, the, again, their services and memory and sacrifice is perpetuated in what we do. That, that's all we do. It's a gathering of submarine veterans. I gather with people in the greater Los Angeles uh, area. Uh, I'm the vice commander of, of one of the bases there, kind of like a chapter of a, of a, of a club, of, of a group. Uh, and our work, we do everything from, you know, uh, the Memorial Day services to supporting um, uh, memorials for, for summary veterans who pass away, supporting them in their time of need. And the Charitable Foundation has done everything from not only uh, supporting the work of the, the, the submarine veteran groups, uh, but raising money for those submarine veterans who were impacted by uh, hurricanes, other natural disasters, sure. uh, for, for memorials um, and uh, scholarships, but also, uh, and this is one of those things that a lot of people are surprised about, we have a program called CAPS for Kids. We have submarine veterans who go to hospitals, children's hospitals, various hospitals, and they meet with families, try to provide a, a moment of of support and relief for those who are dealing with kids, whether it's cancer or some other, you know, lifelong significant medical um, um, situation going on. And we talk with them uh, about the, with, you know, their family and, and uh, we, we share stories with submarines that are appropriate to share with the little kids. And we present them as uh, uh, with, with, with ball caps and, and other items as uh, honorary submarine uh, sailors. Um, I love that. And, uh, so there's many different ways in which we engage with the community. And um, again, it's an opportunity not only to serve within, but to serve uh, the community and allow submarine veterans to continue um, serving uh, in, in their communities and beyond. And it's just, again, the legacy, so much, so much legacy involved. Uh, um, I, I talked recently, I actually wrote an article about this uh, 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 submarine veteran from World War II who died about 10 years ago. And later in life, he became a painter and was painting these incredible images, uh, basically his, his memories, you know, from what he was doing with the submarine. And uh, as I was kind of learning more and writing more about this guy, I was able to talk to his adult daughter. And uh, she was sharing not only about how much pride he had in what he did, but how 
she had his submarine veteran vest. Basically, it's like a blue vest that yeah. veterans wear, patches and medals and ribbons and stuff like that. And she said he was so proud of his service in the Navy back in World War II and right after the war, and that um, she held on to this vest because she knew how much pride it brought to him that she was so proud of his of her father and his service that she wanted to hold on to that vest uh, for a very long time and as a you know as a father and as a submarine veteran that really touched my strength because we look at what we do and how many people will never know you know the ins and outs of what we do as a submarine veteran and there's a lot of people who will never know what I've done and maybe it's good maybe it's good that they'll never do know what I did in terms of food safety you know when i talk to families that are impacted by food safety I only talk with them because they're dealing with the darkest moments of their family's lives. Yeah. They've just buried a child or they have a child in the hospital um, who, who's undergoing treatment that they couldn't imagine a young toddler going through. Um, but the idea that, you know, perhaps it's not, it's not just about my legacy. I think about it in terms of my son's legacy. Absolutely. You know, um, there's a very small dash between 1991 and 1993 on his gravestone. And I think about that and the, the things he could have achieved, the things he could have experienced in life, the things I could have experienced with him. And I look at that in terms of not that it makes it okay that he died back in 1993, but you definitely don't want it to be for nothing. And the idea that perhaps um, his memory, his, his, um, his story, his legacy, what's it, what it's motivated other people to do. Uh, you know, when I find out that there are people that change their career, that change their degree in university, uh, that, that, that started working in food safety because they heard about my son's story, um, it, really, it really starts to impact me as a father who, who can say that, um, again, I can see 1991-1993, and it's very easy to see a life that was frozen in time, but it's extremely satisfying for Filling and 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 uh, just humbling to see that his legacy has grown a life that has um, taken on so much meaning over the past three decades. There's there's no doubt about that, sir. There's no doubt about that at all. And like you said, you've lost your son, but your son has not lost his father. And I think that you are a um, big source of encouragement. That's all I can. I don't know what else to throw at you, sir. I really don't. I, I, I'm so deeply touched by having the honor to hang out with you today, the exchanges that we've had, spending some time learning your story, thinking about food safety in such a different way than I ever have before. Um, you're a light out there that we need in this world and uh, it's shining quite brightly. And uh, I, 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 can't walk, I can't walk in your shoes. I can relate as a parent to where your heart hurts because we all go through that with our kids one way or another, but not at the level that you have. And it's uh, it just it's just an honor. I don't don't stop what you're doing. Keep believing in what you're doing. Keep thinking of the way you're thinking. Keep acting the way you're acting because you're changing this world. And and we need we need more of you, brother. We really do. Well, thank you very much. And I think that one other thing we need more of is courage and uh, all those people that support us. I couldn't do what I do without the support of my wife. Without the support of uh, those leaders in the food industry who I consider my friends and colleagues. Uh, without the support of so many people who have uh, tolerated my messages and my foibles and my my evolution over time and who have uh, granted me opportunity and offered me support in so many different ways. You know, it is, um, you know, again, that idea of, of um, 
1906, the Literary Review of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle said that everything Mr. Sinclair described happened yesterday, today, and tomorrow until some Hercules comes to cleanse the filthy stable. It's not any one Hercules. It's not any one person. It's right. a big Herculean effort that requires the, the involvement of so many people in so many different capacities and wearing so many different hats and capes uh, yeah. as, as, as heroes in their journey and in the lives of those who want to make sure that they are not forever impacted by failures in food safety. On that note, kids, we're dropping the Sharpie. Dr. Detwell, I can't thank you enough for being here. Truly an honor. Thank you, thank you very, very, very much. much. Thank it's you. a pleasure. Everybody, get on his website, pick up his book, challenge yourself to think differently in this world about how you view food. How do you value food? Ask yourself that question, figure out and put a, apply food safety to that answer and see what you think to yourself. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for listening to our broadcast. Don't forget to check us out on social media. We hang out there because that's where all the cool kids are. They tell me, I don't know who they are, but apparently we hang out with them. But I do appreciate you listening and be a part of this broadcast. Thank you very much. Remember, go inspire somebody today. It's incredibly important. Dr. Detweiler, have a beautiful day. Appreciate you. Thank you very much.